Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of Other People is not sponsored because it's premium content. And uh, technically, that means you're the sponsor because you're supporting the program. And I want you to know that I appreciate that. Thank you for supporting the program and for spreading the word about the podcast to friends and uh, relatives and strangers, just, just, you know, people who might like it. I appreciate that endlessly. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, Gina Frangello. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we are. Premium subscribers, this is The Full Hour with Miss Gina Frangello. Her new novel, which is the official February selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, is called A Life in Men. It is available now from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. And uh, it's a terrific novel by a terrific writer uh, who also happens to be a terrific person and a friend of mine. So I'm very pleased to get a chance to talk with her. Uh, this is Gina's second appearance for a full hour on this program. She was one of my earliest guests, uh, I think in like the, one of the first 10 episodes. I can't recall the exact number off the top of my head, but uh, we, we did an hour then. We did another hour uh, just today, and I'm putting the show up right away for premium subscribers because that uh, is what you deserve. You deserve immediate access <laughs> to my content far as I'm concerned. So thank you once again for subscribing, for supporting the program. And I hope you like this conversation. I think you will. And I think you're going to love Gina's book. So here she is. This is Gina Frangello and her novel once again is called A Life in Men. Well, I'm in Chicago and it's about 900 feet of snow here, which has been the case for about the last month. Um, it's just, it's been a ridiculous winter and we've had, you know, effectively no school. Everybody's always having school canceled because all it does here is snow and it's about 17 below zero every day. Um, and I'm also in my playroom, which sort of doubles as my office in the winter. I just sit on the couch up here in my kid's playroom um, because it's the only room in the house that's warm. Okay. I was going to say, you said my playroom. I didn't know if you actually had your own playroom that you <laughs> 
interesting, but I, but that sounds a little pervy coming from an adult. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. So this is your kid's playroom, which you have like co-opted during the day. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, and this is a big moment. I mean, you've got a book coming out uh, on Algonquin, which... Uh, yes, it, it dropped yesterday. It came out yesterday, yes. Okay, so congratulations. This is exciting. Thank you. And we're featuring it in the TNB Book Club, which makes it doubly exciting. And you've, uh, we, yes. we've, we should, I should let listeners know, we've known each other for years. You're the uh, fiction editor at The Nervous Breakdown. And so that makes me uh, triply excited about this because uh, it's nice to, me see too. You, nice to see you having some success. So I want to start by talking about, um, you know, working with Algonquin because I've had authors on this program uh, who have been published by them and everybody seems to rave. Like, is it all that it's cracked up to be? <laughs> You know, it really is. It's like, I, I don't even know what to say. Like, they're not feeding us some, you know, secret bullshit Kool-Aid. It really is all it's cracked up to be. They're amazing. And I have to say, actually, I mean, I credit the Nervous Breakdown largely to what I knew about Algonquin going in, because as the fiction editor, I get pitched things all the time from every publicist in New York, basically. You know, I mean, people want to get their authors featured. And um, I knew a lot about how Algonquin did business and how organized they were and, you know, just how behind the writers they were. Um, when my book was shopping, I mean, I really wanted to, to go out there. I told my agent that I wanted to go to Chuck Adams and, you know, she sent there and, and I had two different offers on the book. And I mean, I just wanted Algonquin. I knew they were the real deal and that, you know, they support their authors in a way that I, you know, they do um, business in a very indie way. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I come from a huge indie publishing, uh, tr you know, background. I've been uh, an editor for 15 years, but, you know, Algonquin's got a very small list. They put out 20 to 25 books a year. And so, you know, their level of personal interaction, it's like working with an indie with money. You know, I mean, I don't, it, that's really the way to describe it. Like they are just really old school. Well, yeah, I mean, it's okay. So, and the other thing too, that, um, I imagine is the case when an author feels good about what the publisher is doing is that part of it is that they're not spread too thin. Like you say, their list isn't like a mile right. long and they have time resources available and they also have financial resources to devote to things like book tours and, um, you know, right. advertising or whatever it might be. But, you know, the other aspect of it, because rolling out a book is a, like rolling out anything into a world that's oversaturated and, you know, is is sending people billions of messages every day, like trying to cut through that noise and get, um, you know, some attention requires organization. So like, you know, do you, <laughs> yes. do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there, a, is there like a process that you've been able to glean that they take authors through? Um, do you know what I'm Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, they do things incredibly in advance. I mean, we had galleys of my book like six months out. And, um, you know, I mean, they've got a team of, of publicists. I mean, I was on the phone with, you know, eight people getting to know them a year before my book came out, you know. And, I mean, I have three people that I work with really regularly there. I mean, I talk to them practically every day. I don't mean on the phone, but over email. The, just the level of interaction, they've, they just are on everything, you know. They have a they have a very regular system of their own, which I had been privy to as one of the you know one of sort of the media outlets that they did reach out to when I you know at TNB, but they also are just really really receptive to ideas from their authors, which 
I think is extraordinary in trade publishing. I think that that doesn't happen very frequently um, with the degree that it's happened at Algonquin, you know, just because of how small they are and how dedicated and how much time they're able to devote, like that they can actually kind of also go off their own template and do different things if their authors are suggesting it. And, you know, with my background in publishing, I have a lot of connections and ideas that may be different from theirs, and they're able to accommodate both. It's not an either or. They're not telling me to shut up. Like, you know, so they've definitely got their own thing, but they're also just really receptive to expansion. Okay. So when you say like receptive to authors' ideas, you mean in particular with regard to public publicity things or like places you yes, might contact. Yes. Okay. But like in terms Absolutely, of what, yeah. what about in like terms of like the design of your book? Did you have like serious input there? Um, you know, in that way, it certainly was not like working with an indie. I mean, like I, as an indie publisher and also as a two-time indie author, like, you know, usually the author has almost like complete, you know, say and veto power and all of that. I mean, you know, they have an art department and their art department really, you know, is the one that generates the ideas. Um, you know, I was in communication with her and she showed me mock-ups beforehand, but you know, that was really largely an in-house process that was, you know, I was sort of, um, I was allowed to be part of the process in terms of like looking at things and seeing things, but I was not going to have a deciding vote or, you know, be the person who was like, here's the piece of art that should be our cover, you know, the way it would be if it was like a, a you know, a micro press or something. You want to know, it's funny is one of my book, uh, was in that stage, um, with Simon and Schuster years ago, they asked me like my, I want to say my editor just like sent it casually, like as a courtesy, but he's like, if you have any ideas for the cover, like please send an email and CC so-and-so. And like, I of course took that and was like, I ran with it. And I came up with like this email and all these ideas. And I was like referencing David Hockney. <laughs> like, it was just in, <laughs> in retrospect, really embarrassing. And I think they like, uh, I think they read it and sort of chuckled and were like, Oh boy, we, we've got a, ro- <laughs> we've got a rookie on our hands. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I did a bit of that myself because I'm a complete insane control freak because of, you know, being in publishing for such a long time. I had a million ideas, you know, and they were very (laughs) tolerant of me, but ultimately they were going to do what, you know, what they were going to do. They understand marketing and, you know, the way that they market and what they want the package to look like. Well, right. And you have to have some trust there. But I think, and this is the thing, uh, because I've, you know, I've, been on both sides of the line um, as like a, a, like a small press uh, publisher and also as an author with a bigger press. But, um, you know, you want somebody who gives a shit and is collaborative and has ideas and gives their input. And I guess the, Absolutely. The, the, the fine line is simply that you're not too overbearing or that you don't throw a fit and refuse to listen to the good advice of people whose job it is to think about these things and to create covers and, you know, that are going to get people's attention and are, right. are going to be communicative with like the readership that you're you're targeting you know so i don't know if i'm a publisher i want somebody who cares enough about their book and is creative enough and has put some thought into those things uh, with the understanding that like it's a you know it's a collaborative process and i guess you know uh, with most publishers um you know particularly those that exist beyond like the small uh indie world you know they they get the final say and uh that i'm okay with that yeah they're I agree. And I mean, they've been really, you know, they've been really inclusive of my agent as well. I mean, like, it's really been, 
you know, it's like a little family over there. I mean, everybody kind of knows each other and, you know, there's often emails volleying around with a lot of people CC'd on them. And, you know, I mean, when I was in New York for BEA in, in May and my book was still almost a year from coming out, like the, you know, the publisher, Elizabeth, like had me come to her office and meet and just, you know, talk and get to know each other for no particular reason. You know, I mean, it was really nice. I mean, it's just not the same kind of, I think, deal that you're going to get. Um, you know, if you're on an imprint that's putting out literally thousands of, you know, like part of a big corporate publisher that has so many authors, they can't possibly keep track of them all in that kind of way. Well, but, you know, that's a, the thing about it, though, is that on an emotional level, that's all that authors want. It's like, for God's sake, I've spent years of my life working up to the point where I could write this thing. And then I spent years of my life writing this thing. <laughs> and then we tried to sell right. it. And now it's sold. And now it, you're the publisher of it. You're the one who's putting it out. Like, just invite me in and let's meet. You know, like I feel like yes, I feel yes, like a, absolutely like a little bit of that goes such a long way with authors. You know, who just want to feel like somebody like personally gives a shit. You know, about the, yes. the, the work. And it sounds like Algonquin does a good job of that. And then, you know, the other thing about it um, that you know I, I think has to be there, and you've sort of said as much, uh, is the the system the systematization the systemizing mm-hmm. of the process of rolling a book out, you know, in all of its different components, whether it's the design or the copy edit and all those, you know, those parts of it, but especially with respect to marketing and publicity, like just managing, just managing correspondence and reminding yourself to do follow-up and keeping track of who said what, and like, you know, all that kind of workflow stuff. Like, you know, if you get a system down and it's a good system, um, it can make a huge difference for, for an author. It makes a huge difference. And I think that, you know, a lot of houses, even major ones, just don't do things in enough advance. I mean, certainly, like, even on the fiction section of TNB, um, you know, I often, as you know, like, am full three to six months out. You know, I mean, it's, it, it just makes our process run much more smoothly if we're full well in advance and we're not scrambling for people, you know, so certainly now I can be flexible, you know, we can do a double feature in a week or whatever, but I mean, you know, if you're trying to pitch to, oh, magazine or, you know, whatever, like these really kind of corporatized glossy type things, you know, you can't send them your package, you know, one month before the book comes out, you know, and I think that's, I just see a lot of, of a lot of houses, a lot of people are pitching to me at TNB, you know, when the book like came out last week and it's usually too late to be able to do anything at that point, you know. So, I mean, I always thought that it was really, you know, I saw Algonquin and certainly many other houses that really just seem on their engine of, of like knowing how to time things. Sure, sure. Well, that's important. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And and so, do you have? Um, I mean, have you done media like gotten like gotten some hits with like some bigger glossy magazines that you're excited about, or places that are? are... Oh, I, I I hear that People is reviewing. I, hey. I like now that I say that out loud, maybe it won't happen, but that's what I understand. Um, that is going to happen. It's funny <laughs> so. that you say that because people. Uh, People, I re- reviewed my book of, of all places because no one else really did, but people reviewed it and it, it was such a big deal. It was the one thing that like my, my like extended family was like, oh my God, he's in people. Well, that's what I was, <laughs> I totally, yes, I told my agent, I was like, basically my parents are going to need to have their heart medication right next to them and be <laughs> sitting down when this happens, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I just, I, I'm doing, they did a feature on me and Kirkus and, you know, things like that that are thrilling to me, but, you know, obviously like my mom or whatever, they're never going to even see that you know they're not people who would read that kind of thing but yeah they're um that would be really it'll be really awesome if that does yeah it's, it's, a, it's, remind, it's reminding me of the time that like uh i got re- i was in college and i got really stoned and sat in the uh studio audience for the price is right and my grandmother about had a coronary <laughs> she saw she saw me in the crowd it was just too much for her to handle <laughs> Like you were George Clooney for that moment in yes. your grandmother's eyes. I had, I, I had like, <laughs> I had reached some sort of like pinnacle, you know, of like. Uh, exactly. Uh, so my mom is so cute. I was just going to tell you, my mom is hilarious. Like she, you know, she, every time, even when, when I have a book coming out and like a, you know, very small indie press, like my mother always delusionally thinks there's going to be a movie and that not only is there going to be a movie, but she's going to be hired to cast the movie. So, (laughs) so so she has like every book I ever do cast in advance for when Hollywood comes knocking on her door downstairs for me. (laughs) It's really cute. Hey, it could happen. You never know. (laughs) Um, so, okay, let's talk about, uh, locations. Let's talk about your travel experiences and all the various, like, uh, you know, far flung locations that, uh, you know, you wind up riding into a life of men, uh, Mykonos, London, Kenya, um, you know, like, get into it and talk, yeah. talk about how travel and travel experiences, um, you know, work their way into your fiction. Well, A Life in Men is set in nine different countries um, over 13 years. So, I mean, it's got a a pretty wide scope. And um, the basic premise of the novel is, uh, you know, it's about travel. I mean, it's about the way travel impacts people and relationships and and kind of – widens our canvas you know a a woman who has cystic fibrosis is sort of at the center of the novel and she makes a pretty risky decision early on and you know in her 20s that she's going to travel and lead a very large and adventurous life despite the limitations of her illness um and so you know can i actually stop you right here because sure uh, this is so weird because i was in and maybe i don't know if i've talked about this on this show before but it was a very memorable travel experience of my own. I was in Europe 
like right after college, backpacking and doing the trains and whatever. And I was in, um, God, where was I? I want to say I was in Austria. I was in, maybe Sal- not Salzburg, maybe Salzburg. Salzburg. And I was at an, uh, a youth hostel and there was an Australian woman who was a bit older, probably in her mid-20s. And she was like life of the party, loudest in the room, leading the charge. And I found out late that night, because it was like a small group of us. We just met that night. And in the way that you do, you go out and you, you know, right. yeah. go bar hopping with people you just met. And so she was really drunk and she had gone from being like super, super happy to like suddenly like crying on my shoulder, telling me that she had, I believe, cystic fibrosis. And like she was basically just wow. like going traveling and like living it up because she knew she had a limited time to do so. So how crazy is that as a yeah. synchronicity? You know? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really, you know, I mean, that's, it is strange. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the premise was, um, you know, loosely based on a woman who I knew who was uh, a traveler who had cystic fibrosis, um, you know, and who I found really inspirational. And it's not, not you know, the 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 novel is, it's not the same woman, (laughs) right? No, it's not the same woman. No, my woman is an American woman. And, you know, she's, she's probably about the same age because I'm, you know, I'm older than you are. So, I mean, yeah, she, uh, she might've been about around the same generation age or what have you, but, um, but yeah, no, she I, she's someone who I lived with in college, and um, you know she passed away when we were thirty, and um, and we weren't close at all anymore. By the time she died, I hadn't seen her in probably five years. Um, you know, so the novel is definitely not in any way about her. It's not her life. It's not her travels. Um, I wouldn't even know how to do that. You know, I mean, I didn't know her well enough, but she was just a, a very inspirational person to me. And so the the basic idea was something that just stuck with me and haunted me. Um, but the places are all places that impacted me a great deal in my life. I mean, the novel starts out in Greece, um, where I took a really formative trip with a very close girlfriend of mine when uh, the summers between junior and senior year of college. Um, and then it moves to London um, and takes place back basically in a house I used to live in called Arthog House, which was kind of one step above a squat down in Battersea, like off the tube line south of the Thames. And, you know, in kind of what was then a dodgy neighborhood, it's quite artsy and boho now over there. But it's um, it was it was dodgy at the time. The estates were right over there. The estates are British projects. And, you know, there um, it was I worked at a pub um, and lived in this kind of weird travelers building with about a. 11 men from all over the world and me. Um, and so there's a large section of the book that's set there. And then a bunch is set in Kenya, um, where, as you know, I spent a month in, in 2010, in late 2010. Um, and then it moves on to uh, Quiretaro, Mexico, where I now run a writing program, but it's set in a house that belonged to some friends of mine that I would go to, you know, several years running. Um, and that house, it, it's a crazy, it's a crazy old, like, basically almost a Mexican castle. I came with count papers when my friend's uncle bought it. And, um, I mean, it was just, it was so large. My friends have since sold it and it's being turned into a hotel. But Mary, that my character's biological father lives in that house. And, you know, so when she goes to finally meet him, um, she goes down and spends time in that house. Um, so, 
You know, all the locations, uh, the final section, it takes place in Morocco, where I've been twice and just was one of probably my favorite trips I've, I've had, maybe other than Kenya, were, were my Moroccan trips. And um, a section takes place in Amsterdam, where I used to live um, in the late 90s. So, so you've done some traveling. <laughs> yes, I've done some traveling. That's good. Yes. That's lucky. Both, both before and since my kids. Yes, yeah, I yeah. drag my kids all over the place too. So, yeah, that's cool. I think that's good for kids. You know, I wish I would. Uh, I wish I would have done more international traveling as like a youngster. You know, I mean, it's not that my. Oh that, God, yeah. You know, it's not that my parents. I don't think wanted to. I just don't think they could back in those days. Or maybe they were just like, we're not getting on an airplane for twelve hours with you crazy monsters. You know. Like, <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of parents still, even, you know, even among our people, you know, like have that kind of outlook. Like, you know, a lot of people just don't feel like dragging their kids to Europe or certainly much less Kenya, where it takes 23 hours to get to Kenya from Chicago, you know, or they don't want to take their kids to Mexico and like maybe they'll get sick and all, you know, all of those worries. Like, I mean, I see a lot of parents who used to travel a lot before they had children and now travel is, you know, Colorado or Florida, you know, and, and those places are great, but, you know, I didn't travel as a kid really at all. I mean, we were below the poverty line and my dad wouldn't get on an airplane. He hadn't been on a plane since 1961. So between those two things, you know, I didn't really go anywhere. Um, but I mean, you know, for me, I guess travel has been really the formative thing of my entire adult life. And, you know, I don't want to stop. So I want to bring my kids. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, um, that I learn more tra like you know like a week or a month of traveling than I learn in a year of like formal formal schooling like it's really instructive and it's stick it's much stickier than like you know classroom education maybe I'm saying something that's totally obvious but it, it just no I I feel the same way yeah it's like it, yeah and and I love the feeling of dislocation that I think some people are maybe not in love with but. I always joke that like disorientation is is one of my favorite things. Like I like being someplace where I don't know where I am. I don't. I like when I don't speak the language. You know, like. And I love all of that too. And and my daughters are um my daughters are good travelers, but they have a little bit more of a love hate relationship with it than I do. They're always kind of hot to go places. They're, they have an adventurous spirit, but um they hit up against more resistance. I think once you know, like once they're there, then than I do. I mean, they're young, you know, but. Um, but I will say, like, when we when we were in Kenya, I mean, Giovanni wasn't even five yet. The girls were about 10. Um, I mean, we got back, and I felt like Kenya had really changed all three of them and that it just was a very dominant part of their consciousness for about, you know, really overtly for about the next six months to a year. Like, they were doing school projects on it. Like, they were, you know, writing books about it on their own. Like, I mean, they just were taking a lot of, you know, it seemed to just be really present in their mind. Um, and it, it was really interesting, you know, to see that happen to them. What do you mean, like, writing books about it? Are we talking, like, novels, like, a, like out of Africa? Like? No, no. No, G Giovanni <laughs> likes to make books. Um, my son, who's almost eight, but, he, you know, he was little back then, and he, he likes to make, like, you know, books of animals and, you know, books of things he's interested in. He'll research them on the computer and print out pictures and, like, write little things about that. And so he did, um, he did his big 
project at school. Um, he, he was only he was he was so little, but he did a presentation on like um, basically animals on safari, and he made this beautiful book um, about all the animals he had seen, and some of them were pictures he had cut out, and others were ones he had drawn. And I mean, I had never seen him work so hard on anything, and he did this thing where he stood up and presented it to the class, and you know, so. Well, that's interesting because it, you know the, you. You don't know how little kids are going to process travel, but it sounds like they process it in much the same way that older people do. Because, like, when I get back from a big trip, it's all I can talk about, you know. And like, you keep telling me, you keep, I mean, it's the most interesting thing about you. Let's face it, right? You know, like, how, how are you? Gonna... Right, you're like you're yammering to all your friends. Yeah, <laughs> and you're sort of the annoying friend. But I mean, you just got back from a month in Kenya and you saw all these cool things, and it was this big, huge experience, and it's it changes you. It's so good. I wish. I wish as a cultural value, and I and I should say in the same breath that I realize that there's an economic consideration to you know to to yes. factor in there. Like yes. you, you have to be able to afford travel. It's really a luxury for the uh, you know upper middle class um, to go yes. to go abroad, um, you know, and to be able to do these kinds of things. But like you know, I, let's I think of like Australians, for example, because I think um, you know at least partially rooted in the fact that they're isolated down there um, geographically, like. I feel like travel is a real cultural value. Like they encourage their yes, young people, true. you know, they encourage their young people to get out and see the world. And like, I forget what the statistic is, but like, you know, a very small number of American people even have passports and it's, it's no people. It's not a cultural value in America at all. I mean, yeah. and it's, it's, it's a shame. And it is also, it is also extremely unfortunate how expensive it is because, um, you know, when you think about it, I mean, that's one of the perils of travel, right? I mean, it's like you go somewhere that it costs an insane amount of money to get. I mean, we took a family of five to Kenya. And basically, you know, I mean, certainly my income would never permit anyone to do that. I mean, it costs like $10,000 to get a family of five to Kenya. You know, I mean, my husband has a traditional job and, you know, he was able to afford for us to do something like that. I actually got a free ride because of uh, SLS. Um, I I won their contest and they, I was already down there. Um, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't quite as expensive, but I mean, it's very, very pricey. And so you go and then one of the issues is just sort of like, you know, you you see how people in other countries live and it really opens your eyes to so many things. Like as a child, you know, Madeline and Kenza were able and Giovanni to go to, you know, the Samburu village and, you know, see places that don't have running water and that don't, you know, like the concept of furniture or houses. I mean, it completely different, you know, like kids who just like have, they have one shirt. They're not necessarily wearing underwear. They're just, you know, their lives are very, very completely different than what we have here and like they were able to see that and like hang out there for a day and like you know just experience that and it really opened their eyes to things and I think about myself when I was a kid you know I mean I didn't have any access to anything like that because you know we were so-called poor you know American poor but I would have had a like it would have been really informative, I think, to me as somebody who, from our cultural standpoint, was like growing up below the poverty line, like to go somewhere else and actually realize how incredibly privileged I was as a kid. I mean, like we just don't have a sense of, you know, the global realities here in the United States. Like I'm not you know, certainly there is 
extremely, you know, extremely hardcore poverty in the United States. But a lot of what we consider poor is still unbelievably privileged compared to like global standards, you know. Right. Well, at least you have, um, you have shoes and like a roof and food. And- yes, I mean, you know, you've got it right. I mean, you have inner city kids who are still wearing like insanely expensive sneakers and have electronics, you know. I mean, and I mean, literally, you know. A lot of places in the world, it's like one outdoor classroom for the entire village school-wise, and like most people there, you know, can't read. You know, I mean, there, there's just no concept of, you know, all the opportunities that we actually have. And you know, my daughters, who of course were um, in a, you know, they were in an orphanage in China for the first nine months of their lives. Like we were able to go visit an orphanage in Kenya, you know, and they like they obviously don't remember China. We haven't been there um, since, you know, since we adopted them but you know that was a really I mean that was a really emotional thing for me and and you know for our family to be able to go to visit an orphanage you know with the girls being older and just kind of see you know what what the you know what the standards were like there and like you know meet the kids and it was just it was really I think it was a major thing for them sure yeah I can only imagine and uh, you were there you said uh, for a writing you got a, a writing fellowship or like some sort of yeah yeah you know summer literary seminars I had won their contest um, I had entered it because Mary Gates goal was the judge and I worship her and I was like maybe maybe you know and I, I said to myself like oh well if I by some bizarre chance win like just having been selected by Mary Gates go will be more than enough prize but then of course once I heard Kenya I was like well maybe it's not more than enough <laughs> to go to Kenya Right. <laughs> so yes. So you won. Yeah, I won. And they paid your way over to Kenya. And you were there for an entire. They did. Month. And so what were you doing? I was. Were you just working um, or workshopping? For the or? first for the first two weeks, I was at the program, and um, yeah, you you did workshops. I was in Teresa Voda's workshop, and you know they have a lot of cultural seminars. A lot of um, a lot of the Kenyan writers and Kenyan artists are you know very liaisoned with that program. So you just get a lot of. Um, you know, just immersion in the arts community of Kenya, which is seriously different, obviously, too. Like, as a publisher, it was fascinating to me because, um, you know, they were just kind of, like, starting to come. There had been so much repression of freedom of speech there, you know, I mean, historically, that, like, their writing community was just kind of starting to grapple with ideas of, like, how to distribute literary magazines, how to really get things out there and disseminate information and, like, you know, a Kenyan national voice. Like, I mean, they had been so consumed for so long with just the idea of, like, how do you not go to prison for writing something, you know, <laughs> that, like, they, you know, they were kind of, like, new to a lot of issues that, you know, other cultures where there's not, like, repression of, of people's voices, like, you know, would take for granted. So so we got to hang out a lot with, like, someone who was running Kiwani Literary Magazine over there and, um, you know, just meet a lot of, like, the older Kenyan writers. And, and it was really cool because um, there was really no hierarchy there with regard to, like, fame or reputation because the writing community is very small. And so you'd go to, like you know, basically an open mic reading and there'd be somebody there who was like nominated for a Nobel Prize, you know, it was just, it was incredible, you know, like they just kind of like, it was like one community. And that sounds refreshing to me. Yeah, it was really, it was awesome. I mean, and yet obviously like pretty difficult for them, like the reasons behind it, you know, for them were not necessarily positive reasons because, you know, there had just been so much repression that there had not been a thriving, you know, large competitive 
artistic community, you know, and that that's something that like is just starting to emerge, you know, now. But yeah. um, like the, the guy who like got nominated for the Nobel is like, can, can we expand this community so we can get a hierarchy going? Because I deserve to be at the top of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, but the, but it was great. I mean, it was just amazing, like, who you have access to, you know. I mean, as a young Kenyan writer, you know, like, who you can be friends with. Like, it's not, you know, it, it's certainly not like that if you're a young writer living in New York or something. And, you know, I mean, there's just so many writers there that you can't possibly meet, like, all the people who were formative in your youth and things like that. So, but, um, but yeah, it was very, it was really, that part was amazing and um, very educational. And then after that, um, my family came out and met me in the last two weeks. We were in Lamu, which is like, um, it's, it's like a, a, basically like a little island that, um, you know, is, is Muslim. Um, and it's really, really old world. Like there's no cars and, um, everyone still travels by like Dow boat and donkeys and they have, you know, just like amazing old architecture there. And it's really beautiful. And we went there and then we went on safari. Okay. Did you ride a donkey in Lamu? (laughs) (laughs) I had my foot stepped on by a donkey in Lamu. (laughs) There's really not... I'm, I'm picturing you on a donkey. It's fun. Okay. There, there is not really a lot of need to ride a donkey in Lamu unless you're transporting goods because, like, the whole island is so small, you could basically walk it by foot. But, like, people use the donkeys primarily to, like, transport their things. Well, what about, so. your, what about your kids? You could just throw your kids on the donkey. Right? <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> Um, okay, so get, help me with a timeline because you know uh, you like when did a life in men land at Algonquin? They trip to Kenya. Yeah, I'm trying to piece it all together, but I'm I'm not. Yes, to... so so basically, a life in men was already written. Um, you know, so I thought um, was already written was you know already finished was with my former literary agent um, and you know starting to shop around um, when I went to Kenya. And I went to Kenya, and I kind of like I had had a little feeling like of the novel not really really being done or not really being what I wanted it to be. It felt too episodic and disjointed. I mean, it does span a great deal of time, and so there is a somewhat episodic nature to it. But um, but it felt in some ways more like a linked collection to me at that time, and I wanted it to be more novelistic. And I felt like there was some missing piece with the with the protagonist Mary that I hadn't like quite cracked her in certain ways until too late in the book and I so I had this feeling of unease and I went to Kenya and I I just really became kind of consumed while I was in Kenya with the idea that Kenya had to be in the novel and that Mary had been to Kenya and when I conceived of her being there, it was very early in the book. And so I ended up coming home and completely rewriting the novel, which I had spent about three years on. I completely rewrote the whole thing in about two months um, in just kind of this crazy frenzy of like reimagining it. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if maybe I was going to completely ruin it. And um, I ended up just kind of starting fresh. I got a new agent and uh, she went out with it. And so I hooked up with her in, in May. I had been to Kenya in December. By May, I had hooked up with my new agent. And um, who's your, it sold who's your in, new agent? in July. Alice Tasman. Okay. So you came back. Okay. And so this two-month period where you're rewriting, like, does that mean like blank page rewriting or you're like scribbling over text that you've already got down? You know, I mean, it was obviously all in my computer. So, I mean, like, certainly there were parts that remained. You know, I mean, like, there, there were certainly, like... 
Towards the end of the novel, I didn't really rewrite from scratch. Like, I mean, the two final chapters of Morocco and, and Gander um, are actually both mostly intact. Um, the rest of the book, I mean, like I was using the document, but almost everything was getting just nixed and, and written over again. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's a big project in two months, and this is a yes. It was crazy. It's like a four hundred and forty page novel, too. I mean, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was say, driven and insane. This is not. This is not like a slender little, like you know, like forty thousand word, you know, almost novella. This is a big, thick novel, you know. Yeah, and, it, and I mean, the, the original version had taken, you know, like I said, you know, over three years to write. So, I mean, it was, um, you know, it, I'm not usually that fast <laughs> so so did this did the, this decision to like rewrite the novel because you said you switched agents like was there a, did that have anything to do with the switch like we um yes oh yeah absolutely my my former agent who was you know wonderful and, and had been really supportive of me but she thought i was not doing the right thing i mean she thought it was like why am i fixing what's not broken and like we're going out with this and you know it's it's fine and you know she yeah she wasn't in love with the new direction and and um i was determined i mean i just like you know what it's like i mean obviously you're a writer and it's like you know once i knew what i thought the book really was and what i thought the story really was and who i thought the characters really were i would not have been happy to have the former version out in the world like it was just it was going to be this or nothing and i was either going to make it work or i was going down with the ship you know so that i just couldn't stop well yeah and, and i mean think in that situation you really have to i mean wh- whose opinion are you going to go with you know what i'm saying you have to go with yourself and at that that particular crossroads you have to i mean you do have to you do have to and yet of course like you can sometimes be the very worst judge you know i mean it was yeah. kind of terrifying because I, you know, obviously, like if every writer who thinks that what they're doing is the right thing to be doing were right about that, I mean, we would have, you know, like all our students would be geniuses, you know what I'm saying? So it's like I, I'd worked with enough writers as a professor and as an editor to know that the writer is not always the best judge. So I was very, very nervous. Um, and I thought, you know, it's entirely possible that I'm just completely fucking this up, you know, but at the same point, like we have to write, ultimately, I think we have to write for our obsessions, not for, you know, I guess the end result, even like for me, the process and, and what I'm obsessed with is more important than the idea, like what's going to happen to it when I'm done. And so I felt like, you know, I've written books before that never came out. (laughs) If that happens with this one, I still needed to, you know, I mean, I felt like I still needed to just do what, I felt, you know, what I was compelled to do, yeah. whatever the result was. You know, you, like, you, uh, it, it strikes me that uh, I, should, I or somebody else should write a book about writing that's called It's Entirely Possible, I'm Completely Fucking This Up. That's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very common thought. So when you got, Yes, that's a new craft book. <laughs> right? That's what it's called, a craft book. Uh, so when you uh, tell, talk, tell us about the, uh, the sale to Algonquin, getting that news. Well, I mean, of course, you know, God, there's nothing like shopping a book. I mean, it's sickening. It's like, it's so, so nerve wracking. It's just one of the most horrifying experiences that like a writer has, you know, I mean, right now I have two really close friends who are both looking for agents and like, it's just so that whole process, like it, it's, it's like, you know, waiting for a boy to call, like, it's just awful, you know? Yes. So, I mean, I, I, 
you know, I've been sort of a ringer in this business, Brad. I mean, you know, like, I mean, my, my first book didn't come out until I was like 37 years old. You know, I mean, I had been basically, I mean, I had written my first novel in my mid twenties, you know, and I mean, I published a lot of stories. I was editing a magazine, but like in terms of the book arena, I had a lot of disappointments. I've had four literary agents, you know, I finally got my first book out, you know, within, with an indie, a pretty small indie, you know, didn't have very wide distribution. I mean, I loved my editor there and Oh, I love like the culture and the climate of that community, but it was like, you know, there wasn't certainly a very wide readership. And so, I mean, I had really like, I guess, whatever (laughs) paid the dues, but you get cynical and worried. And so for me, like the process of shopping, I mean, I expected nothing good to come of that. You know, I mean, I, I loved Alice and I was, you know, thrilled by her enthusiasm, but I was thinking in the back of my head, like, Oh honey, you don't know. I'm I'm cursed. But um, nobody knows. But yeah, the, nobody knows I the mean, trouble I've seen or whatever. Exactly, exactly. I was like, you know, a bastion of self pity. But um, so you know, I mean, I I was very pessimistic and kind of nervous and sick, and that. But it was finally, you know, the one time that it worked out pretty easily. You know, it just was not very long, and and um, you know, I had I, actually my my former agent had even submitted to Algonquin, um, but to a different editor. And I, like I said, I had requested that it go out to Chuck. Um, I liked his work. I liked his list. Um, you know, and I just had a feeling about him. And and they ended up being one of the two that wanted it. And I had a phone call with him and just pretty much from the first few sentences, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, <laughs> you're like, I love you. The, I love you. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. You know, I mean, I actually really loved the other editor too. Um, but you know, I, I think really, it, it may have ultimately like, it, it probably came down more to the size of Algonquin, um, than, you know, than it, than it did to anything else. But I really, really, one of the first things Chuck said was that he wanted to, make sure that the novel sent signals right away that like, even though it was about, you know, these comparatively young women traveling, that it wasn't some, you know, chick lit book or it wasn't like beaches or something like that. And, and that he wanted to, you know, he really wanted to work with me to like kind of make that clear from the beginning that it wasn't just going to be like that kind of like, you know, young chick adventure story or whatever, and that it was bigger. And, um, and that made me really happy because I was worried if anything that the marketing angle would be like, let's convince all the, you know, young chicks that this is just the young chick adventure story, you know, and, and because that's where the, like where the money is or something, you know, so like a picture of an airline ticket and a cupcake on the front cover or something, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, I think that's, it's a big concern. I think for a lot of women writers that, you know, you're going to be just kind of branded for as only this gendered writer or that somehow you're writing things that are going to be like, Oh, there's going to be a lot of shopping and shoes in here or, you know, like, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, he has so much experience in the business and he's so savvy. I mean, he had worked for 30 years at Simon and Schuster and, you know, I just felt a lot of trust in his vision and I felt like he really, you know, knew what he was talking about and that I myself like have trouble letting, I'm a control freak and I have trouble like letting go and trusting other people. And I felt like I can talk myself down and trust this guy. Like I can believe him when he tells me like, this is how it is. And this is what you need to do. Like, this is like, I'm not going to want to buck every single thing he says and just be like, no, I know, you know, like, and 
so that was important to me. Well, and you know, you talk about the the shopping process, and then you talk about being a control freak. Like I think every writer has uh, some strong component of that in their personality because that's what writing a novel gives you. For all the things that it doesn't yes. give you, you know, like, you know, for all the you know well-documented shortcomings that so many novelists experience in the way of money or um, you know uh, reaching a big, huge audience or whatever, like you do have control in ways that you don't in other art forms and narrative <laughs> art sure. forms in particular. And um, you know, the shopping process is. And also, I guess, like reaching out to an agent where you're submitting and you're waiting to hear back is, you know, that's the period where you cede control almost entirely. Or, mm-hmm, or, exactly. or actually entirely. There's nothing you can do except sit there and no. wait. And it drives, it drives me crazy, too. It drives me absolutely It is absolutely horrid, yes. Um, so with regard to Chuck, uh, you know, and he's, you know, he's known in, in the business as being – um, you know, savvy about the about publishing itself, but also just a very good editor. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about like what it was like to work with him? You know, how did he work? Um, how did you guys go back and forth about changes to the book? Were there big changes? You know, um, I mean, he was a joy to work with, and I have to say that, like, you know, as much as I I had so much trust in him and I knew how smart he was and I knew how savvy he was and so I was prepared to have to let go of a lot, but I also knew that he has a reputation for being a pretty like he edits. I mean, he is not like, oh, here's a few little tiny notes, you know, like he really can be a pretty hardcore editor. And um, so I was, I was a little terrified waiting for my notes. I was like, oh my God, what's he, you know, what's he going to make me do? But, um, but really the notes were almost entirely on things like a sentence level. Um, I mean, he is an unbelievably close reader and he he can spot you know inconsistencies or just anything like you know any kind of lack of clarity like and he's amazing at flagging those kinds of things he just reads so closely but he didn't really make me change anything major on a plot level um we had one chapter uh, the mexico chapter where he had asked for more of Mary and a little bit less of the point of view of the man that um, she's involved with at that time because it had felt too heavily weighted towards that man. Um, and so, you know, we worked on that. But um, that was about the most major thing. Like, uh, but, the, but that said, there was probably not a, pa- you know, not a page in the manuscript that didn't have like 20 marks on it. So it was a time-consuming process, even though there was nothing huge um that's that's got to be good because you know the the big rewrite that you undertook uh you know on your instinct after your trip to kenya like you know that could have been confirmed i guess it would have been confirmed or or denied by the fact that nobody bought the novel so the fact that the the fact that somebody bought it was you know confirmation enough but like there wasn't anything in the editorial process that made you think like oh i shouldn't have done that like chuck Right. Yes. I mean, he had told me when we talked the very first time that he did not foresee, you know, any major edits. But I also had a very long lead up towards pub. I mean, they bought the book two and a half years before the book came out. Um, So, of course, like, you know, 
the first year, Chuck and I were in communication, but I hadn't even done the revision yet. You know, so I was thinking to myself, like, oh, sure. He said I didn't have to do much. He'll go back and reread it, and suddenly he'll be like, you know, I think the entire novel should be in first person. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you have your terror. But, it, no, it was, it was very smooth. It was very smooth. Uh, okay. Well, so one, uh, one last thing that I want to talk with you about, because I feel like you can speak to this being the mother of three. Uh, is an issue that I think confronts a lot of writers, and that's how to balance family with getting work done, which you manage to do, not only in, in the context of your fiction, but also in the context of the work that you do editorially at TNB and elsewhere, um, right, writing, right. writing essays. You get a lot done for having three children and you know parents in the house and you know all that kind of stuff. Like You've got a lot going on, and I'm wondering how you do it. You know, because do you sleep? <laughs> uh, I don't sleep a lot. I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm a little uh, I'm a little manic. Um, I, don't, I don't really sleep that much. Um, so, I mean, I do think I do think a, a couple of things. One, um, I my kids are all a bit older now, so it is not as difficult to find work time as it was, say, five years ago when I had a toddler and, you know, then like eight-year-olds or even when I mean, probably the hardest time that I ever had getting work done was when I first had gotten the girls. I mean, they were nine months old when we adopted them. And, you know, that period of having basically infant twins was so intense. I mean, I was I was working a maximum of 10 hours a week back then. I mean, I was with them nearly around the clock. I, I worked very little. So first of all, just to sort of say, you know, I'm not some wild superwoman who, like, ha- has managed to consistently work all the time while having the kids. Like, there have been times when I haven't gotten really anything done, including sleep, but not work either. Um, but, you know, recently... I don't know. I feel like you have to accept that you're not going to have downtime. You know, I mean, I don't watch television really. I, I, you know, I, I read, but I, I also, you know, most of what I read, which is frustrating, is one of the biggest frustrations of my life. You know, most of what I read is like student manuscripts, submissions for TNB and the Rumpus. You know, things like manuscripts of friends of mine, things I have to blurb. Like, I mean, I don't. You know, I mean, I read, obviously, books, but I mean, I have friends who are posting about the hundred books they read in 2013, you know, and it's like, okay, I read probably like 12 books. I mean, it's, you know, because I'm, I'm always working on the editing and on, you know, the teaching and then writing my own stuff. And and that's a a difficult frustration. So, you know, I mean, you can't go out as much. You can't, you know, watch a ton of the new cool shows on HBO. You can't, you know, read as much for pleasure. Um, You know, you, you have to be realistic about like, I try to be full throttle with my kids when I'm with them, but I'm not the room mom. You know what I mean? I don't volunteer at the school. Like I'm not super mom in those ways. Like they go to school and I come home and work. Like I am not, you know, I'm not able to do some of the things that a lot of the stay at home moms in the neighborhood do, you know, who are just like volunteering in the library, going on every field trip. You know, I have to be really rigid about my time, you know, so I guess you just have to, you know, you have to accept that there's things you're not going to be able to do, but if you love your work and you also want to have like a vibrant family life, like you have to just compartmentalize. Yeah. I mean, and you know, who wants to go on a field trip? Let's be honest. (laughs) 
you know, I feel bad for my son because I will admit that, like, I did a lot more of that sort of thing when my girls were little than I do now. You know, my my career has gotten busier, and also, like, he has third child syndrome. You know, right, <laughs> so. right, right. Well, you can maybe, you can just like pick the one really good one and go on that one, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going on a field trip to Washington D.C. That's like for a whole, you know, like a few days um, in May, and so I figured, like, okay, that's my it's my girl's eighth grade trip, and I'm just like, all right, this makes up for like all the field <laughs> trips that I, that I blew off, so I could come home and work. Right. So. I did that trip in eighth grade. That's fun. You know. Oh, cool. Um, okay. So you've got a book tour, right? I do. Algonquin, yes, it's Alg- massive. Algonquin tours their authors. I know this. They uh, tour like, wow, they are they are amazing with the book tour. I mean, who gets like these awesome book tours anymore, you know? Uh, yeah, they, they have been incredible. I'm going all over the place. The tour spans basically, you know, I, I leave on, on Saturday for the East Coast, and, like, it's not really over until the end of April. Like, it's sporadic because I can't go nonstop with the kids, you know, but, but I'm doing festivals, I'm doing reading series, I'm doing bookstores, I'm doing university gigs, like, I'm doing both coasts. I'm in Seattle and Portland, I'm in Tucson, I'm all over the Midwest. Like, it's you know it's incredible good god okay and then um you can't be writing anything right now right this year i'm only writing short things i mean i've got you know i've been writing like a few essays because people are hitting me up for those really nicely right now but um but no i mean i had a novel that i thought i was going to be done with by the first of the year and i had no idea like (laughs) how busy i was going to get i mean there's no way i'm not probably even looking at it until may but maybe that's good. You know, and I think like, you know, I hear this from authors all the time and I think like psychologically, yeah, you know, I know a lot of people get really ritualized and they get superstitious about not wanting to miss writing days and they get edgy when they're not getting words on the page. But when you have a book coming out, you got to just roll with it and you got to just say, this is the time I'm going to spend pushing this book. I mean, that's that that seems appropriate to me, you know, and that's part of the job. I agree. And I also think like, you know, I mean, people don't like touring and some people don't like to be on the road. And, you know, I mean, they just look at it from the point of view of like, I'm sick of pimping the book or I'm not a salesman. But like, you know, in this day and age where so many of us have friendships and connections all over the country from like, you know, Facebook and Twitter, you know, I mean, I even teach online. So, I mean, even in my teaching life, like I just this is a great chance to get to be around so many writers who I know all over the country and do events with them, you know, see people I never see, in some cases meet people I've never met in person, you know, so I'm I'm really excited about it. I mean, I think that's a separate thing even from I want to market the book. I'm thrilled to market the book, but I mean, it's also a personal thing. The tour is going to be amazing, just not like a personal level getting to hang with all these people whose work I admire. Well, it'll be fun to see you when you're out in Los Angeles. I know you're going to do some, yes. do some time out here. So uh, I'm very excited about all of this, and I'm really happy for you. Nobody – like for people who listen, Gina does a lot. She's been doing a lot for a lot of writers for a lot of years. So it's nice to see you getting uh, some appropriate spotlight. Thank you. Okay, guys. There you go. That is the full hour with Gina Frangello. Go get her novel. It's called A Life in Men. It is available now from Algonquin Books. You can find Gina online at GinaFrangello.com. She's on Facebook. You can find her on Twitter, where her handle is at Gina Frangello. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out uh, KillRockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app if you don't have that yet. But if you're a premium subscriber, you probably have the app. 
It's the easiest way to listen to premium content. So thanks again, guys, for your uh, support. I can't say it enough. That's really it for me in terms of uh, doing this show. I have to get the subscriber base built up. I need uh, the, 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 you know, the crucial support of my listeners who are here uh, week in and week out. So thanks, and I will talk to you again real soon. Mm-hmm.